Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. We're going to a period of history we don't often visit today, aren't we, Zach? We are. I'm ignorant. Well, actually, that's just a, a standard comment when it comes to me, <laughs> isn't it? I'm, I'm just ignorant. Uh, but I'm particularly ignorant about this one because we're doing a bit of maritime trade, but we're looking at the Indian subcontinent and we're taking it way, way back. We're talking eras of history that I barely know even exist, and I'm pretty sure Alex is pretty clueless about as well. To help us through it all, uh, we are joined by Nick Collins, who at one point scorned life as an academic, can kind of see some of the temptations of, of that some of the time, and instead went and worked for the world's largest shipping company. But he's now seen the light, he says. I think he's been tempted back to the dark side. And the result is a fantastic book about maritime trade in the Indian subcontinent and the way in which it shaped the world. Nick, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Thanks. Um, thank you for a very nice introduction. I, I didn't really scorn um, <laughs> academia. It was more, um, my dad had been a teacher. I, uh, all his friends were teachers. I'd been to school and university and I needed to go and see the real world, you know. Um, yeah. It's right. Zach's currently uh, applying for academic funding in that, so you can scorn away at this point. He's had enough. <laughs> no, He's going to follow I'm, you. No, I'm, I've come back. I've come back. We are going way, way back. Um, our story starts in the Ice Age. Why is 5,600 BC a key date in your story? Okay. Um, well, the last glacial maximum um, is around about 18,000 BC. And then around 12,000 or so, it, it, it gradually starts to warm. And what we have are three big, um, the, 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 the sea starts to rise, but um, there were three particularly main mega melts, one about 12,000 BC, one about 
9,500 BC and, uh, or 9,600 BC. And um, the last one, 5,600 BC, uh, and that was the flood. And it wasn't a biblical event only, it was a, a worldwide flood. It's not controversial, it's well known. Um, and the evidence for it is, is found, well, uh, recently they found some uh, underwater megalithic structures of Okinawa and the Pengu archipelago. Um, there's um, in 2000, uh, lost ports were found on the west coast of India in the Gulf, Gulf of Cambay. Um, and they've been, um, and they've, it's difficult to dive down there, but they've had the sonar testing. And the sonar images are stunning. Um, basically, uh, a nine by two kilometer port by the banks of an ancient river. Um, and they've dredged up some uh, very, very ancient uh, stuff from there, wattle and daub and, and stones and instruments. Um, and, and then in the Mediterranean, of course, uh, there was the flooding of the then Black Sea, uh, which, was a, which was then a, um, a freshwater lake. Um, and um, then, the, then there's evidence um, on the west coast of Britain and Scandinavia a big silt deposit where the tsunami which which was which was caused um, by the melting of of what is thought to be the ice uh, in the St James Bay uh, Hudson Bay area um, and must have devastated uh, the whole of that coast um, and you know most uh, the, the, it's been carbon dated in the in the um, uh, in the Oh, in the Persian Gulf as well, you get you get a whole new set of of settlements springing up about 5,500, 5,400 BC, um, and they have been carbon dated there. The, the seashells and the former shoreline, sorry, the freshwater shells uh, on the former shoreline of the Black Sea, and they all come down to uh, there 5,600 BC or there or thereabouts. I mean, there are various theories about the myth of Atlantis. I rather like. Um, I'm most persuaded by Peter James's arguments that it's uh, that it's the ancient city of Tantalus, which is an anagram of An Atlantis, uh, which was destroyed. Um, gosh, I can't remember now. Some somewhere about um, uh, three thousand or something like, maybe maybe earlier, three thousand BC, something like that. In, it, it's in Anatolia. So obviously you're talking about massive changes in coastlines and settlements and that. So presumably trade exists before that, but it changes massively at this point. Well, um, the, um, the, the trade in the Indian Ocean, um, we, can, we can say that it was happening during the Ice Age because um, the temperature in the, in the Indian Ocean then would have been um, a little bit... Uh, uh, cooler than now, but still pretty balmy and Mediterranean type. Um, and there's plenty of evidence of shared stories from the Persian Gulf through to Japan um, <coughs> that, uh, <coughs> that all display very similar traits. So we know that there's in interconnectivity, and we uh, we should uh, infer from that, that that goods were being exchanged, even if the, even if the volumes were very small. But what happens after 5,600 
is that, um, well, let, let's, let's go geographically. In, in Britain, it would, it, until 2015, the story was that agriculture didn't arrive with, with uh, Indo-European colonists until somewhere around 4,300 BC or something. And then in 2015, uh, archaeologists found in the Solent some evidence of wheat growing uh, and even flower making uh, dating to 6,000, in other words, before the flood. So uh, we must assume that a, a lot of these settlements were wiped out during the flood and that agricultural development was put back um, in Britain. But when they did, when uh, the Celts finally arrived in in uh, um, in um, uh, in Ireland, for example, you, you know the the seed fields uh, where there's about 560 miles of stone walls now covered over by peat have been found. The most extensive extensive Neolithic uh, field system. It indicates that the agriculture made a, a difference on the population, <clears throat> and judging by um, figures of, of hunter-gatherers as opposed to agriculturalists in um, in New Guinea, probably forty or fifty times the population. So, um, so not only, but they knew where to come. They they knew where they'd come from. So the interconnectivity between the Celtic lands of the British Isles and Brittany and uh, Iberia, um, there, there must have been a, a huge amount of interconnectivity there, which we'd see in the evidence much later but it, it it got it's got to have been there before um and in the indian ocean well the ports were, were were devastated but new ones were built um because the continental shelf uh, along india is not um, is not uh, is not shallow whereas in uh southeast asia the what is called sunderland a, a massive um area of land was completely devastated, and um, and um, so and, and then it became what it is now—a series of, of islands. So, one of the civilizations that you talk about is the Indus Sarabasti. I've probably done a horrific job in the pronunciation there. What was that civilization? What was kind of specific and important about it in terms of impact? But equally, why does it end up declining? Okay. Um, well, the um, we talked about the rise in sea levels, um, but the other thing that was was going on um, was that the glaciers were melting, especially in the Himalayas, and this carved out a, a, a huge river basin um, uh, where that was flowing down into the um, Gulf of Cambay, um, and the greatest. Of the river, I mean, we call it now the Indus civilization. I I call it the Indus Sarabasti because the Sarabasti was the greatest of of the rivers of many of the rivers. There's lots of rivers, but <clears throat> what these rivers did was they fertilized a, a, a huge area. Um, canals were built, um, and so uh, around three thousand. I mean, this has been developing since since uh, you know since. Uh, the end of the Ice Age, but um, what what happens at about three thousand one hundred BC is that um, the uh, bronze is discovered. Uh, how to alloy bronze between uh, tin and copper, and this 
increases the amount of um, or the, the, the effectiveness of tools. And um, so this civilization starts to starts to accelerate in its sophistication. And you get um, you get uh, about three or four hundred riverine cities, um, a few thousand dependent settlements. <clears throat> so over a huge area. <clears throat> and it's thought that perhaps 10 percent of the world's then population lived there. So important was it um, that uh, <clears throat> that um, a lot of civic buildings have been found, unlike unlike Egypt and Mesopotamia. Very few, if, if any, um, royal palaces have been found, or that's the interpretation, but civic buildings, granaries, um, canals, uh, dockyards, um, and all designed on a, a specific geometric ratio. In fact, they were very clever at, uh, at this. And in fact, pi- the, their altars were, were um, reduced in size or increased in size based on using Pythagoras' theorem, which Pythagoras, a couple of thousand years later, discovered on a trip to India. So um, it was immensely important, and it had ports, um, and it traded, well, uh, north and south, but mainly um, to to the Middle East, to Samaria. Now, here we go, I mean, um, it's a, a commonplace that, the Middle East is the cradle of civilization, but it's not. It, it was India. They had the they had the first cities. They had the first ports before the Ice Age, uh, and when the when the Middle Eastern uh, Sumerian uh, civilization um, developed, they were dependent on Indian products: timber, cotton, um, food, um, and so that was the supply route. The end of the Indus-Saravasti civilization uh, was because this whole area um, is is where the tectonic plate of the Indian Ocean comes up against the one that uh, has created the Himalayas, and it is prone to very frequent earthquakes. And that river system that I described changed quite a number of times over the few thousand years. Uh, but the biggest one was the disappearance of the river Sarasvasti, um, and uh, caused by an earthquake, it, it dried up. Uh, the rivers that fed it uh, instead went into the into the Ganges, and its sacredness was transferred to the Ganges. Um, <clears throat> but what this did was that um, the Sarasvasti, being the biggest one, I think it was five miles wide uh, in in a lot of areas. Um, and, and therefore carried a lot of water. Drying up, it destroyed many, many uh, cities and, and dependent towns and, and villages. And some were, carried, some were left high and dry, some were covered in silt. Um, and what that meant was that there was a big exodus of people uh, to the Ganges Valley, uh, for sure, um, some think to Sri Lanka, um, and um, a number of groups, probably military groups, into the Middle East by, the, by that trade route. Um, because suddenly, uh, in the Middle East, we get Kassites, Hittites, Mitanni, um, and, and others um, appearing suddenly, and not to mention Greeks and almost certainly Trojans. So 
so that um, so that kind of um, was a was a push to already developing Mediterranean trade. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's like shifting the whole axis of your understanding um, yeah. of human history. So let's look at the Bronze Age. Is there a rise here in Europe's fortunes? Well, certainly in the Mediterranean, um, yeah. which is developed from, well, conventionally dated, but we'll maybe come on to that in a minute. But 3000 BC, the origin of, of the of the um, pharaonic civilization in Egypt and the Phoenicians who were, um, which looks like a planned, um, uh, a planned uh, uh, settlement with the Phoenicians <clears throat> resident in, in Egypt, but also in Tyre, Sidon uh, and Byblos. And in Byblos, they were, they were shipping down um, uh, timber um, to, to Egypt, which is timber deficient. So, um, <clears throat> so, so this whole eastward, um, sorry, this whole westward um, move from the Indian Ocean started funneling more goods uh, of Indian Ocean uh, type into, into the Mediterranean. And that's where we get the beginnings um, of the Minoan civilization on Crete uh, and the ports being the Phoenician ports, but also Ugarit, which is uh, in Syria, <coughs> now destroyed. But the, that had five harbours and was fanning out, uh, distributing goods all over the Mediterranean. And then you've got Cyprus, uh, where copper was discovered, so, which, is the, um, which is the main ingredient for bronze, so this whole um, Levant coast, uh, Cyprus, um, uh, Crete, um, and uh, of course Egypt, uh, th- this whole um, movement of goods uh, were, increased it very rapidly. Um, but, the, but the Egyptians weren't seafarers. The, the main ones were the Cretans and, uh, and the Phoenicians. You dropped us a little sort of hint there about Troy, does the Battle of Troy have an impact on maritime trade? And if so, what? Um, yeah, well, um, Troy was, um, how, do, how far do I go back? Um, Troy was um, the gateway to uh, the Black Sea. Um, and it was almost certainly deliberately located there by Trojans because of that. <clears throat> they seem to be also. Uh, late Indo-Europeans, probably connected in some way with the Greeks, who were not a uniform people. They were, you know, um, Homer describes them as Hellenes and and Danaeans and Argives and Aeolians, and but but culturally similar. Um, and they inhabited the uh, they inhabited what is now Western Turkey and what is now Gr- Greece, um, and they. Um, and they invaded a very lightly populated country, uh, which historians, uh, the inhabitants of which the historians called the Pelasgians. Pelasgians. And, um, and it was lightly inhabited because, as, as always, Greece is not particularly fertile. In fact, 30% of its, um, of its land is a, is, can, can be agriculturally developed but only 20% any good. 
So this huge influx of people, and probably um, the the remnants of the the Hiskos invaders of um, of um, Egypt when um, where Pharaoh Amhose kicked them out, they almost certainly went to to Greece. Um, Herodotus uh, tells us quite a lot about that. Um, so the the Greeks um, were overpopulated um, in this not particularly fertile area, and so at once they started going on a maritime search for food to Tuscany, to southern Italy, to Sicily, southern France, even uh, a little bit uh, into Iberia. But most of all, they prioritised the food-rich Black Sea. And to get through the Black Sea, they needed Troy's assistance or its destruction. And that is the cause of uh, the Trojan War, access to the Black Sea. And when they got there, um, and this is not conventional chronology, but because conventional chronology does not make any sense at all, they developed the uh, the the colonies in the Crimea and the Sea of Azov, um, which shipped back food, fish, uh, wheat, especially wheat from the Black Earth regions of today's Ukraine, which they developed with the Scythians, um, fruit and, and all that kind of stuff. And that fed, uh, that fed. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So yes, uh, the Trojan War, uh, a 10-year battle or 10-year war, apparently, according to Homer, uh, was um, vitally important for feeding Greece and maritime trade. And the Greeks, the later Greeks, thought it was the most important uh, po- important uh, point in history because it was their salvation. Um, it, Greece always, even through the classical times, always had a problem with, with food supply. It's well documented, uncontroversial, but it started not, um, not in the classical times, but before the Trojan War and was relieved by the Trojan War. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. 
We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. You've mentioned classical times there. Um, what can you tell us about what you call the clash of the titans? Because this must have um, a knock-on effect beyond the Indian subcontinent in terms of maritime trade. Yes, uh, well, it, the, the, the book is about uh, maritime trade worldwide, but the the supreme importance of of um, and the centrality of India in the Indian Ocean. So, yes, um, the Clash of the Titans chapter is is really about this this ongoing problem with food security. It's always been a problem in the Mediterranean, and so what you've got is the Greeks um, having having uh, secured Black Sea food supply through the Trojan War, then uh, come across um, the Persians. And the Persians are uh, advancing, threatening the Black Sea, um, and they're either side of the Hellespont, um, threatening the food supply. And then then they go on to conquer Egypt, which is also the the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. So (coughs) they were defeated um, eventually. Um, But then you've got um, the Carthaginians uh, and the Greeks in Sicily fighting. It's all for control of food and the the trade routes for food sources, Uh, Sicily being another grain-rich area. Um, And eventually you've got um, the the Romans coming in, and as they expand up through the um, Italian peninsula, they become a bit short of grain as well, so they've got to have Sicily. Um, and then, then they get bigger still, and so they've got to have Egypt, um, and, uh, and uh, they get to their olive oil and, and grain from Iberia, from Spain, Spain in other words. Um, and so they're fighting each other from the time of the Trojan War until Augustus's triumph um, in the uh, first century BC, all for supply of, of, of trade routes to supply food. So that's the clash of the titans. It's the Carthaginians, the Romans, the Greeks, um, the Persians, um, and it's and these, these are the wars of those centuries. You refer to the Roman and the Han empires as tentative globalization, which is one of those things where people, uh, sometimes you get academics who sort of suck their teeth and go, oh, can you use that term in that context? So Why do you kind of refer to it as tentative globalization? Talk us through your reasoning behind that. Yes, I I know that globalization is one of those things in 19th century history that that, uh, gets people agitated. Um, But, um, well, it's it's basically because um, there was a a huge trade between the Roman Empire from the time of Augustus um, with, uh, with India. Um, in fact, um, uh, bullion was shipped to India, and in return, cotton textiles, drugs, medicines, uh, timber, uh, pearls, uh, diamonds, um, and other other uh, precious stones were all shipped back <coughs> through Egypt. <coughs> Sorry, through Egypt. Um, Building on what the Ptolemies had uh, had started trading with India, uh, when Rome conquered it, they continued it, but but massively scaled it up. Um, and uh, in the first century, 
and an early second century, um, it was taxed by the Romans at 25%. And one estimate, which I think is persuasive, uh, says that, that that financed about half the whole of the Roman Empire, just a tax on this Indian trade. Now, the merchants, the Roman merchants, um, and they probably weren't Roman, but they were probably what they always been, Greek and, and, uh, and Levantine, uh, Phoenicians, now in the first century converted to Judaism. Um, and they were penetrating um, West Coast India, then East Coast India. And then in the early second century, they were, they were uh, getting over to Southeast Asia and eventually got to Okio, which was a port in the Mekong Delta. And, um, and there they exchanged goods, and, but also they were taken on to China, where it's reported that there was, this is 166 AD, that there was a, an embassy, a Roman embassy, visiting the Chinese court. Um, and it is thought that um, not only did they want to exchange goods, but that um, maybe uh, they wanted an alliance with the Chinese to attack <coughs> the Persians in the middle. Um, but anyway, this, this didn't go on because just a, a year before, um, China had succumbed to a massive plague where about a third of the population died. It then came uh, into the Roman Empire a year later um, in 166, by coincidence, and um, a third of the population of Europe died. Um, so it's tentative because it never went anywhere. It, ha- it stopped. Demand, European demand um, for all those Indian products um, suddenly was decimated. And among those people that were most badly affected were miners, um, gold miners. So the so gold, which was being shipped to India, was no longer available. And so, um, yeah, the, the globalization um, stopped. Indian Ocean trade uh, continued, but at a much lower level, into the 400s or 500s. It's remarkable, isn't it? And um, new foundations are laid, though, in terms of trade networks in Asia and the Indian Ocean. How? Um, well, I think rather than new, I think they they continued, but without the um, uh, but without the impetus of of Roman uh, bullion. But they continued throughout um, uh, Asia, whereas whereas European trade steadily declined in the Mediterranean and, and North Europe, um, it, it rose in, in Asia, basically because uh, of the growing um, Chinese uh, civilization. They were ethnically cleansing. They'd come from the center of China, <coughs> what we call Han Chinese. They were ethnically cleansing the Yu, who were the maritime uh, population from maritime China. And their demand was being fueled by, by products from Southeast Asia. Um, and, um, and this helped uh, those, those states become states, political for, formations in Southeast Asia. So by the end of the period, by, let's say, uh, seven, seven, six, about 680, <coughs> the Srivijayan Empire is formed 
uh, among those polities in Southeast Asia, centered on Palembang in Sumatra. Um, and uh, it, um, it basically controls the Kra Isthmus uh, and the Malacca Straits and Sunda Straits, which are the choke points uh, connecting the Indian Ocean to, um, to East Asia. So this, this uh, maritime empire then controls uh, all the newfound trade. And essentially, it's about, I mean, there's, there's of course, there's tremendous demand and supply in India. But the new factor that you're referring to is the, is the new growth of, of Chinese demand. Within these, are there shifts in areas of influence, such as a rise and fall in the Red Sea? Because obviously we're looking at like really big regional, like Middle East, Mediterranean. That Are there nuances within them? Well, um, yes. Um, the, um, you know, when, um, when the, the Sarasvasti dried up and, and there were these migrations into the Middle East, then that was mainly through the Persian Gulf. <coughs> when the Ptolemies, when Alexander conquered Egypt, <coughs> the Ptolemies then um, developed trading with India with the Red Sea. And in fact, before that, there was um, a very important um, link between Phoenician Hiram of Tyre and King Solomon, who um, did a deal together by using... Um, Using the port of Ezium Geba in the in the uh, Gulf of Aqaba, um, they did joint voyages to India. This is around 950 <coughs> BC or so. Um, so, um, but what what the uh, what the Ptolemies did was increase those voyages. The, the, um, Solomon and uh, Hiram voyages were once a, one sh- I don't know about one ship, but we're told that. They went once every three years for about a century. Um, <clears throat> uh, what what um, the Ptolemies did was increase that number. Uh, we're told by classical writers about 20, 20 ships a year. And then when the Romans uh, uh, come along, they increased that to about 120 ships a year. So, uh, yes, that was a, <clears throat> that was a big uh, issue. Um, and, it, and it increased the importance of the Red Sea as against the importance of the uh, of the Persian Gulf as conduits for Indian Ocean goods getting into the Mediterranean. Um, by the end of this period, 750, uh, we get the establishment of the Abbasid Empire uh, centered on Baghdad. And that and Baghdad becomes um, a big inland port with its outlying port uh, in on the coast of Basra uh, becomes the main conduit. So Yes, you get this, uh, depending on political uh, situations and various conquests and natural disasters, you get a a rise and and fall of the importance of the Red Sea or the Persian Gulf. Really interested to know as well. So your your book goes to the middle of the 8th century and another sort of cataclysmic world events that happens in that period is the foundation of Islam. And that's how does the prophet and Islam come into the story? Well, at, at the um, <clears throat> at the uh, fall of um, at, at really kind of ever since ever since the this one six six epidemic, the, the Roman Empire did this did this slow motion collapse to 
fifth uh, uh, century, well, fourth, sixth century, I, um, I suppose, um, <clears throat> depending on whether you think that uh, the Roman Empire ended in 475 with the last emperor um, uh, retiring or being thrown out, or whether it was um, the um, uh, the subsequent rulers who uh, uh, basically ruled in Italy. Um, so, but basically, what you've got is is a declining economy, and the economy declined in in Asia. Uh, sorry, not in Asia, but in the Middle East as well. And so, probably at the lowest point, um, uh, the merchant Muhammad um, thinks that uh, uh, a way of revival <clears throat> is is a new religion, uh, an Arab centered religion. Um, and um, and his successor uh, then founds the um, uh, the first dynasty, which which tries to con- conquer Constantinople, <clears throat> and then and then uh, again very bad effects on on trade and the movement of goods in in uh, in the Mediterranean, which almost ceases. Um, it probably had ceased. A little time before that, in uh, in northern Europe, um, and but as I said, uh, then his successor, the Abbasids, uh, found Baghdad, and then <clears throat> this, this then there's a whole new era of maritime trade in Asia. But and and here we here we come. That, that's the end of the book, basically, because because what you've got is um, maritime trade in Europe virtually ceasing. It's gone, um, which is which means that there's a huge decline in population of interconnectivity. Whereas in Asia, despite the fact that the Romans are no longer uh, uh, pumping bullion into into the Pacific economy, Indian Ocean economy, I should say, um, <clears throat> as I said, is the trade continues from East Africa to uh, uh, Persian Gulf through India into Southeast Asia and China. And it's voluminous and it's fantastic, um, and the, the contrast couldn't be couldn't be starker. So that seemed to be a, a good a good uh, point of, to end the book. That's a really interesting. That was exactly what I was going to ask. You know, what was the thinking behind um, ending the book? There, can you give us just a sort of a, a sense of the the legacy, if you like, of the period that you've been looking at, and sort of what shifts beyond the middle of the eighth century. Um, well, yes, the, I mean, <clears throat> the, the book ends there because, um, as I said, it, the contrast couldn't be starker. But but also, um, book two in the series of, of the history of maritime trade, the next one is 700 to 1700. And in 700, you've got absolutely zero, virtually zero going on in Europe. By 1700, a north corner, uh, northwest Europe, um, is pushing out, um, dominating the Mediterranean. It's dominating the Americas, and it's <clears throat> making great strides in in Asia. So I call it the maritime um, the millennium maritime trade revolution, seven hundred to seventeen hundred. So um, it seems like a, a, a nice neat fit. <clears throat> the legacy. Um, I think the, the most important thing is to um, is that, as far as I'm aware, nobody has 
uh, tackled ancient history on a trade basis, on an economic basis. Um, and I think we need to know what happened um, so that we can put it in context with um, later history and indeed today. Um, um, it's, um, it was extremely frustrating to research, to research this because so few people had, had actually looked at it. And, uh, <clears throat> um, and Indian historians tend to concentrate on India and Mediterranean historians concentrate on the Mediterranean and Romans and the Greeks. Um, and, um, and the Egyptian historians are extremely jealous of, of their, their subjects' unique identity, as are Assyrian historians. And it just needed putting together by means of, of trade. So I, I think um, hopefully shining a light um, on that is the most important thing. I have to say that as I was reading it, um, one thing that struck me, and even more so listening to you talk about it, is the phenomenal amount of background knowledge you have to be able to wax lyrical about Bronze Age and then Ice Age India and then sort of like coming into what Eleni Yanagar will kill us if we refer to as the Dark Ages, but sort of the early medieval period. Um, it just the amount of knowledge you have is quite staggering. Uh, well, thank you. I, I did do quite a lot of reading. <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine you've been drowning in it. Uh, so remind everybody again what the book is called. Uh, the book is uh, How Maritime Trade and the Indian Subcontinent Shaped the World, Ice Age to Mid-Eighth Century. There it is. Absolutely daunting subject handled very skillfully. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining us. Well, thank you. Um, please have me back when the uh, when the next one's published. Absolutely. Yeah, we need to carry on with the story. Uh, I, I sense you will not be struggling so much for source material for the next one. Uh, it's it's already written and uh, it's with the publishers. So maybe towards the end of this year. I don't know. This this book was 10 months later than <clears throat> than uh, it should have been because of COVID, I suppose. Um, this one, I I hope it'll be on time, but we'll see. And I'm guessing that you then have to do 1700 to the present day. Doing it, I'm working on it now. Wow, that is absolutely daunting. So what you've essentially taken on is a complete history of maritime trade the world over. Well, well I, you know, I had a degree in history and I spent my whole career in uh, maritime trade. So, and nobody else had done it. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll bloody do it. <laughs> Kudos to you. Zach and I will just carry on with the little minutia of crime and punishment and generals in the First World War and stuff, uh, because just this this kind of sweeping history is uh, is quite terrifying. But you've handled it brilliantly. Thank you. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book.